0: Peace Corps gives us a chance to show a side of our country which is too often submerged. Our desire to live in peace, our desire to be of help. There can be no greater service to our country and no source of pride more real than to be a member of the Peace Corps of the United States. Hello everyone, happy new year and welcome to the My Peace Corps Story podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lloyd, and I'm here to help tell the stories of current and returned Peace Corps volunteers. If you like what you hear today, be sure to let me know over at MyPeaceCorpsStory.com and connect with me on Instagram at MyPeaceCorpsStory or on Facebook by searching for my Peace Corps Story. Additionally, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review for the show. Five-star reviews are extremely appreciated, but more than anything, I want to know what you think so I can better serve my audience. On today's episode, I speak with Jacqueline Zoccoli, who served in Liberia from 1966 to 1968. Her primary role was teaching, but she also did a lot of community development and everything else in between, as any Peace Corps volunteer does. We talk about her time in Liberia in the late 60s and how she has managed to stay connected with the people that she served with more than 51 years ago. She recently got back from a reunion that she had with her fellow uh, Peace Corps 9 Liberia volunteers, so her stories are fresh on her mind about what she did and what they were able to accomplish as volunteers in Liberia. I think you'll really enjoy the show and hearing her story. Without further ado, here is episode 24 with Jacqueline Zacoli. This is, this is, this is, this is my, my Peace Corps, Peace Corps, my Peace Corps, my Peace Corps story, story, story.
1: My name is Jacqueline Ziccoli and this is my Peace Corps story. My name at that point was Jacqueline Highland, H-Y-L-A-N-D,
0: and now Ziccoli. Hey Jacqueline, how are you doing today?
1: Great, how are you?
0: Doing very well, and excited to, to talk with you about your experience in Liberia. Now, I knew a little, just a little bit about the history of Liberia and the creation of it, and I find it to be one of these very unique countries in West Africa, and you'll probably uh, share some of those same sentiments as, as we get talking about your experience and your understanding of Liberia. But starting off, just tell everybody who's listening a little bit about yourself, about Liberia, and what you were doing there as a volunteer.
1: Yes, most people aren't really aware of what, where Liberia is. It's on the western coast of Africa, um, right by Nigeria and Ghana, those countries. Um, it's about the size of Missouri. It's a very small country, and it was founded by American slaves. So many of the things that they do are Americanized. Their money system um, is in dollars and cents. Their political system, in theory, is as ours, though they've had their struggles. Um, And you hear about them, well, more recently than not, in the Ebola um, problem that we had was pretty much centered in Liberia. And we were sent over there or asked to come, which is more appropriate. You don't just approach and go you are asked to come as teachers um, and that would be for uh, to allow their teachers to go to a teaching school and we also had a large uh, number of uh, lawyers that were teaching at the college and couples uh, which was very unique at that time, we didn't usually have couples so we had about 10 uh, couples and so it kind of made a different composition so out of the hundred and I think it was about 110 people that went through training. Uh, about 80 of them um, actually went to Liberia. And um, though English is their common language, they have about 29 of their own dialects. So it's like a pigeon English. Um, when they say it fast, it's a little hard to keep up, but most of the time it was not. And so we taught in English. And um, yet their way of learning was very different than our way of teaching. Keep in mind, I was taught to be a physical education teacher in high school. So as I became a elementary school teacher in Liberia, it was quite a stretch for me since that was my first year of teaching. Though when they learned, they learned by rote memory. And we do not teach by rote memory. We teach by understanding the concept and thinking. So it was a whole different way of looking at life for them. And possibly one of the things, hopefully, the advantages that we gave them in their lives is that they were able to think about it. Um, So we lived in Greenville, which was a good-sized town. Um, Since people are going to see this all over the world, it's a little hard to come Uh, If you were to know, it's a small town, but larger than some, and it was the county seat, so it was a pretty good size for them, and right on the ocean, um, so fishing and that type of thing were um, part of the whole deal. We had two houseboys and rented a home um, actually better than any either of us had had because we'd only been married for a year. So um, that's kind of the overall. I don't know how much you want me to talk about that.
0: No, no, that's perfect. And as you were talking, I was thinking of uh, several different questions from just the things that you shared there. For your training before you went to Liberia, Um, because unlike Peace Corps now, where volunteers go to the country they're going to serve and then they do their training there uh, for two to three months, uh, when Peace Corps was first founded... All the training was in the United States. So, where did you do your training?
1: We started out in San Francisco at San Francisco State. Um, that was from October through December. We had a break at Christmas time. Then in January we went to Key West, Florida. That was as close as they could come to that environment. And then we did our student teaching there in the schools there. And then left in the first part. Well, the end of January, and then went to Monrovia, which is the capital of Liberia. And the couples stayed with um, U.S. aid and different diplomats. The uh, singles were in more of a barracks type of a thing at the capital. Um, and then uh, in February, um, we started in different parts of the country. I, on my birthday, was on my way to Greenville, Um, so that's kind of the way it went. Yeah, I don't know how they do it in in the countries now. I mean, that's a big expense. And seeing as we we left about 20 people um, that were deselected, that's an expense to get them back again. So it's kind of amazing the way they're doing it now, but obviously it works, so they wouldn't be doing it.
0: Mm -hmm. No, yeah, we definitely had some people that – did make it through, uh, tr- training it in my group. And it definitely is an expense, but for, for me, at least I, th- I found benefited for at least a lot of the, the language learning, uh, cause I was, yeah. lear- I was learning yeah. French and I don't think <clears throat> I would have been able to learn French if I was staying in the United States. It's, it's far yeah. too, far too tempting to speak English. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. But, Good. but for, um, you being a, uh, teacher trainer, what did that actually look like um, sort of day-to-day? Were were you at like a large um, institution or was it a, a small sort of school setting? What exactly was your role as a teacher-trainer?
1: Well, actually, I was a teacher. Oh, you are a teacher. In, in theory, the trainers, they were going off to school. I asked last weekend when we had our reunion, uh, our 51st reunion, I asked and I said, did anybody ever really know whether they got trained the people? <laughs> <laughs> and they all could not they all agreed they had no clue mm-hmm. so that was the original reason we I was in an elementary school, the Methodist elementary school, and all of them were in schools, whether they were specifically religious oriented or general school. My husband was in the high school, and um I also taught um um microbiology type of thing in the high school in the evenings. Mm-hmm. So, no, you know, we were in the community, in the schools themselves, and we never really knew what the teachers were sent to do. And we're, our assumption was that they did get an education because <laughs> that's why we were invited to be there, but never saw that. Mm-hmm. Now, I have to say the attorneys who were in the school, the, the college there, the law school, yeah, yeah. They knew, and they had their own students. That that's what they were. I guess they were teaching them to be attorneys, is what they were teaching them to be. Um, but we never really saw or verified that who we were replacing um, got taught.
0: Okay, so you were more or less a long-term substitute, filling in exactly. for filling in for somebody, so they could go do further training. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. And for people listening, explain a little bit about your uh, day-to-day of what you were doing as you were living in this, this small village, in this community. You know, how did you spend your time when you weren't in the classroom?
1: Yeah, that's very interesting. When we arrived we, uh, at, at our home, which was nice, um, we, uh, two houseboys uh, appeared because of the volunteers that were there before, and they said, we want to be your houseboys, and realized that being a houseboy for a volunteer is important. It's, in, it's critical in a couple of areas. Number one, we couldn't accomplish what we needed to do unless we had one. Number two, we'd be helping out the economy and the people in the country, um, because even though their wage was small, they could then go to school, because they had to pay for their own school. So our life was built around, and funny enough, um, this is really kind of humorous, we um, would start our day essentially by looking outside. And we were on the main road into town, which was, was slightly elevated from us. And if it was raining, which um, if you were any tropical country at all, it does that quite well. Um, if it was raining hard and there were no kids on the road, we would not have school. So it was, that was the first part of what you do, is to look outside and see if there are any kids on the way to school. Um, And then we would walk, you know, it's kind of weird. Then we would walk several miles to the schools. Um, We did have a jeep. Um, We were the only ones in the area with a jeep. There were actually two, four, there were four of us in the town, so that tells you it's a bigger town. So we would go to school, um, never could wear anything like shorts or anything like that. We only could wear dresses for the gals. Um, That was the protocol. And so we would get to school. We would go to school until around noontime and then um, come back and have lunch. And as I recall, I can't remember if we actually did anything in the afternoon. I haven't looked at my journal. I did keep a journal for all those years. Um, But we would come back and do our homework and lesson plans and that kind of thing. Um, Or we would have – I also tutored um, a fellow uh, in typing. I did bring my typewriter. Um, Or I would have girl guides, um, which is like Girl Scouts. I tried to start that. It was very foreign to them because the girls don't have a big role in society at all. They don't play games or soccer. So I also tried to start a PE program, which was kind of funny because they had no clue what to do with balls. Um, So um, our day would kind of be revolved around that. The houseboy, when they did come um, at first, they said, we want to be your houseboy. And um, so we said, okay, we'll try one of you for a week in, in the cooking and one of you for a week in the cleaning and keeping the house type of thing. And they both were excellent, of course, so we kept both of them um, because we needed to have them go to school. And they were probably, what, 17, 18 easily um, because they had to pay for their school and they didn't have the money for it. So we would come back and do our lessons and then after school, the other events, um, reading was a big deal. Um, they gave us a, um, a nice big bookshelf full of uh, pocketbooks and that's I had not read that much as a young person. I was only twenty, going to be 20. Well, I was 21 when I started. Um, and so to have a book to be able to carry with me, um, because when the Liberians are told that you're to meet at 4 o'clock, you'll be lucky to get them there at 6. <laughs> so um, <laughs> the Liberian time is not American time just because, oh, my God, it's just something we want to do right now, and we'll get there. So <laughs> books were read very easily. You just sit and read for a couple hours until they get there. And um, so that was kind of the day. Um, we did have other times and we met with other volunteers uh, every couple of months and um, would have parties and that type of thing. Um, or another type of a thing would be that when officials came into town, uh, Jack Vaughn was one of the original Peace Corps directors. Um and he came into town, and since we were the only couples in town, we were delegated to be the ones to entertain. So um, they would be there, and we would make all kinds of fancy meals that we learned how to do while we were there because the, the um, missionaries taught us how. So we were very close to the missionaries, and um, then we would entertain, and then our Peace Corps Jeep would take them here and there. We were actually a, so to speak, shut-in type of environment. Um, The main road was not open from our town to Monrovia until right before we left, and we were really the only Peace Corps people, the first Peace Corps Corps people, to go on the road to the capital. So otherwise, we were by plane once a month um, into Monrovia to get our supplies, Um, We did have um, Lebanese vendors or or retailers in town, so we maybe had as many as six or seven places where we'd get canned goods, Um, nothing like no fresh meat to speak of at all unless you count fish. Um, And, of course, there were bananas and pineapples and that kind of thing. Um, But our transportation, uh, there was no need to have transportation because there was any place to go. So, uh, except for our Jeep. So, that was kind of the way it was. Did that answer your question?
0: Yeah, and it, it's interesting. So, I I served in Burkina Faso, also in West Africa. Ah. And, and just hearing some of the things that you were talking about are are still to this day exactly the same. Uh, and it, <laughs> it's just so funny, especially, you know, when you said, you know, always taking a book to meetings. I, yeah. I remember that fondly. You know, you always had to have a book with you. Because huh? we said that they were on um, West African International Time. Wait. Yeah. 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 So you, you know, you just brought a book with you. Hey, everybody! Sorry for the interruption, but if you're enjoying this episode and the My Peace Corps Story podcast, please consider becoming a patron of the show. You can do that by going to patreon.com/slash My Peace Story or com slash support. Patreon is an online platform that helps creators like myself get paid and fund the projects that they absolutely love doing. If you want to help me continue to tell stories of Peace Corps volunteers for as little as $1 a month, please consider becoming a patron of the show head on over to patreon.com slash my Peace story or mypeacecorrestory.com slash support. Now, back to the show. Previously uh, on this podcast had interviewed someone who served uh, at the exact same time that you did, but he was in India. Uh, it was, oh. I, it was uh, his name Ray Myers. He was on episode 18 of the show and one of the things that he that he talked about or that I asked was, you know, staying connected with friends and family back in the United States because I I was fortunate. I mean we, you know, all walk around with cell phones and it's the the exact same thing in sub Saharan Africa now as well, where, you know, I could talk to my mom every single week. But, uh. Yeah. Yeah, so, oh, really yeah <laughs> oh
1: my gosh well, so so oh. what was
0: your experience of just staying connected to people yes. because you served at a very different time so how was that for you
1: well we we first of all we had the only shortwave radio so we were able to talk to uh, Monrovia. Though that's as far as it went. So those international letters, I don't know if you use that or not, where they fold over mm-hmm. and you send them. We used that was a constant. We would send them every week. Um, so I could actually type it um, because I had a typewriter and um, or write it. So I would send something to my, my mom like every week. And then um, the other communication was the Army Corps of Engineers um, had a place down the road, and uh, since I'm not sure exactly what they were doing, to be honest with you, um, but they, were, they would get um, care packages every once in a while. And the joy of, I don't know whether it was a B-29 or whatever it was, it's a big plane um coming along the main road and you're just standing under watching and these packages are coming down and we were able to to be part of that so we would get a literal care package dropped by this huge plane wow um just once a quarter maybe you know mm-hmm. at christmas time and then the packing for that crate of whatever it was was a green Um, styrofoam-y type stuff that was, I can't, it was a packing material that was on a sheet. So we were literally able to make a cone out of it, and that was our Christmas tree. (laughs) Um, And we would put palm nuts on it so that it looked like ornaments. And um, we were very thankful to have them to be able to drop goodies um, every once in a while. Nobody else had luxury at all. Mm -hmm. So very fortunate. But the communication was by letters. And of course, by the time you got anything like a magazine, um, which was very unusual, or you got any information, it was months. It was like a month out of date. So you never really were that close to communication with the rest of the world. Um, But with that said, I remember whenever anyone would set, would have a song on the radio, and I'd go, I don't even know that one. And they'd say, you don't? That was in the 60s. I said, yeah, between 66 and 68, right? And they said, oh, yeah, I guess <laughs> you're right. So <laughs> there was a whole other world out there <laughs> that I had no clue about because it was in those years. But the funny thing about communication is that we would go on a bush trip every once in a while that I loved because I love the tropicals uh, areas. And we'd go back there, and one of the first questions they would ask is, why did you kill President Kennedy? Wow. Well, that was a bit hard to stomach.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Um, and there was no real answer for that. Um, He was loved by people even in the bush, Mm -hmm. and you tell me how that communication got there because I don't really know. (laughs) So uh, it gets there, and there are no talking drums, I mean, (laughs) that way, so to speak, Um, but there is communication.
0: Mm -hmm. And now, do you have a favorite memory, or you can share a few if, if it's hard to pick, but that comes to mind when you think back on your Peace Corps experience, and maybe it isn't one specific event, but just an overarching thing that you remember fondly from your service in Liberia.
1: Yeah, the one of the there were a couple. I showed, you, I told you one before, but this one I thought about it later, and this I come back to and think of often. When we did go to the bush, my husband and I, we would go with the missionaries. Um... And there was the main Mr. Uh, Mr. Carpenter, John Carpenter, and then his assistant. She wasn't married to him. He was an assistant, a younger gal. Um, Nancy was with us. So four of us would go to the bush. Well, when we were to stay overnight, um, obviously we had to stay in their accommodations, which were basically the huts. And um, we were on hammocks, thank heavens. Um, She and I were – were sharing pretty much, um, uh, it was off the ground, let's put it that way. And so she and I were in one, and then the two guys were in the other one. And then there was a, a like a clothesline between the two walls, and yeah. we put our clothes up there. And we were told that that was because the army ants might come through. And so lo and behold, 2 o'clock or so in the morning, We start feeling these things biting us, and if you know anything about army ants, they're very destructive, and they'll eat small pets. Sometimes they've said kids or people that get drunk or they get kind of taken over. Um, Anyhow, um, we felt these things coming around, and that was why all of our clothes and stuff were up above because they just come through and just take care of whatever's in the house. got any food or anything down below they just eat it as they go through so we're batting everything around us we're throwing stuff around we're trying to get stuff off of us they didn't hurt us they just stung and lo and behold about five o'clock in the morning you hear the guys in their hut screaming all of a sudden oh army ants well we'd already handled them for how many hours in the morning (laughs) but the guys got all the attention and everybody went over and helped them (laughs) (laughs) So it was funny, but just to having that part of the environment to be real close and figure it out, I mean, it was, yeah, it was something that they do. They just, it's a way of cleaning out the village is when they come through. Um, So that's one of the stories I'll never forget, being in the bush. I just loved being in the bush.
0: Mm -hmm. And do you have a a least favorite memory from Peace Corps? You shared one with me. I didn't know if you wanted to share that now with those who are listening
1: yeah that one was not as great an experience. It was a learning experience that made it real obvious why we were there. Um, my husband and I in the early, either late at night or early in the morning, got a knock on the door. <laughs> you can always say bok, bok, which means knock on the door. Mm-hmm. Um, they knock on the door, and we opened it up, and this fellow was hysterical. He was yelling and screaming and saying that his i guess his son, had gotten hurt. Could we please come across the river with a jeep and help them? Well, lo and behold, the son had taken a machete and was cutting um, bush and went right across to his knee, um, nearly took his knee off. Um, And so we went to help. I didn't actually go. My husband did. And he said that they had packed it with sugar and kerosene. You can only imagine the pain, the excruciating pain. It's a wonder he wasn't in shock Mm -hmm. um, by the time we got there. And I illustrate that because no matter how we tried, and we did have a hospital of sorts, the traditional belief system is still stronger than nearly anything else that you can bring on board. And it just made it real obvious to us that we had to do everything we could to get them to the hospital to learn these things, to be able to, um, to learn how they can help themselves a lot better. And that was one of the key things we focused on more, was to actually get them to be more educated about ways to help themselves instead of relying on the witch doctor type thing or tradition that was not good. So, yeah, that was one of the stories.
0: Mm-hmm. And then what do you miss about Peace Corps?
1: I think I miss the people the most, even in spite of the fact I don't communicate with any of my students. Um, it's the simple, it's the simplicity and the beauty of the culture. Um, I've written many poems. Um, I go back to them every once in a while from that, that time, and one of them was based around the smile and their simple, beautiful smile and their warm-hearted nature to always make you feel comfortable. I felt comfortable more there than I do many times in my own country. I could walk down the street anywhere and wouldn't be hurt. So it's the smile. It's the warmness. Um, About 2006, maybe, I was uh, in charge of a symposium, a Liberian symposium in California, and the ambassador was part of it and everything, and we were going to bring more trade into Liberia. Um, At that point, I was promoting that event, and I went to Sacramento in California and went to a church there to help promote the event. I walked in the door, and I think I probably had Liberian clothes on, walked in the door, and it was like I was long-lost family. All they had to know was that I was in the Peace Corps, and they could not be more hospitable. And that's the way those people are. They want you to be part of their lives. They want to listen. They're curious. um, They're positive. Um, The the smile is what does it. I mean, it's a universal language, and that's that's what I miss is that openness and – that curiosity, um, probably the most. Of course, I miss the tropics. I miss the tropics a lot living here in Arizona, but I miss <laughs> the tropics <laughs> and the food. And but we get that every year when we have our reunion, so it's not so bad.
0: Mm-hmm. And then, is there something that stands out that you? learned from Peace Corps or that you sort of kept with you and tried to bring into your American life post-Peace Corps, something that sort of shaped and defined how you've lived, um, you know, after after your service?
1: Well, that's a million-dollar question. Um, I played for years, actually, with the concept, what the heck did I do there, Uh, seeing as... When we had parades, they were common, parades. We, every time they had a chance, they had a parade. They would march down the street with wooden guns. And later, as they had in the 89s and 90s, they had their revolution and nearly destroyed everyone there. I kept saying to myself, what, what, what did we do? What, what were we able to do? And I asked the group over the weekend... What do you feel that was really important? And they gave me a good 20 minutes, and it was very true. We were able to foster kids. We were able to, um, and some of them went on to get PhDs. Um, we were able to bring some back. What did I get out of it? What I got out of it is it's so important in a culture to listen To try to understand, to acknowledge through listening who they are and where they are going. And I'm doing that now in all that I'm doing in my network, um, my global collaborative all over the world in 196 countries. And I think that's the biggest thing that I learned is that each culture, each person in the culture has a story, just as you're realizing as you're doing this. Each person has a story, and the most important thing we can help them with is to build their self-esteem. And when you listen to someone, as I hoped that I did more than less when I'm there, then their self-esteem starts to build. And when you start to help them to see resources and ways to get where they want to go, their self-esteem goes even farther higher. So I hope that that was probably the most insightful thing that I realized um, is that there is so much beauty in other cultures. If I would just sit and watch and listen and be part of that – I think one of the other things is that we really can change the world image of the United States. Um, One person at a time when we go to these countries, we need it so badly to have a new look at us and who we really are as people and show them our compassion versus anything else that they may expect of us. And um, probably the listening and the realizing that there are more resources that they need and that I can provide. That's what I've done now with the rest of my life. I'm working with the Peace Corps. They are part of the nonprofits that are working in the communities and I hope to connect all of them. So um, to come back to this um, is really what I learned is that the collaboration, which is what I'm all about, the excitement of awareness of the things around you, is what I'm all about, and building self-esteem so we can increase love, prosperity, and peace. Mm-hmm. That's probably the core of what I learned.
0: Mm-hmm. Definitely a, a valuable lesson. And would you like to, to speak a little bit more about the the current work that you're doing so everybody who's listening can, can know what you're up to right now and continuing sort of to, to serve and continuing the things that you learned uh, from Peace Corps in, in present day?
1: Yeah, at this point, I'm a networking coach. I'm a word-of-mouth strategist in a, in definition of what I do. And I attached myself to a group called the, um, well, it started the World Parliament on Spirituality. And from that grew the Global Prosperity and Peace Initiative. <clears throat> and I assisted in getting 40 of the 196 countries with um, to get peace ambassadors in each of those countries. We will eventually have 196, and it, I have taken on as my mission to touch the lives of each of those 196 to find out what their focus is, their nonprofit, their resources, whatever it is they're focusing on, whether it's trafficking, whether it's diabetes, whether it's abuse of any – whatever – and to set up a database to connect them worldwide um, and with something called Life Story Library where you take a video of someone's life and it's in a library all over the world. So that they can share those stories and hear the people's voice and hear the, to build the self-esteem um, and to, um, to bring up the voice of the people instead of the top-down management that we have so that we can make it through this purge that is happening right now. And my biggest concern is to be able to talk to those people and get them to collaborate across the world. And I think it's all based on five C's. The first one is, co- is commonality. And once we start realizing our commonalities, we communicate those commonalities and then we commit to work together, then we contribute to that commitment, and then we get with, we do it with an open mind and without judgment and keeping our own expertise, we get collaboration and what I call the glow, the guided love of wholeness. So I do everything in my power now to get that database going and to talk to each one of these peace ambassadors that have been selected. and. Right now, I'm compiling and will be, as I talk to them, uh, resources. So, if any of you have resources specifically that will help the NGOs and the nonprofits to be self-sustainable, that's their largest challenge is to be self-sustainable so they don't have to spend so much time on fundraising that they could spend more time on being in the community and their cause. So I already have about three areas that I can offer. So as I go to these people and find out what their, what their cause is, I want to offer them answers um, to what their biggest problem is. And typically it is definitely um, the fundraising. And um, so that's pretty much what I'm doing now. Um, I'm finding ways to help them financially and ways to get them connected, Um, and it eventually will have a website to be able to do that as well. So that's kind of my cause at this point.
0: Well, that is quite the cause, and for anybody who's listening right now, uh, in the show notes at MyPeaceCoreStory.com for this episode, you'll find all the links at the bottom, so if they want to find out more about the work that you're doing, uh, they can find it all there with you know the Billion Dollar Networking, um, the Prosperity and Peace, and then the Life Story Library. I'll make sure to have links for all of that information um, if people are interested in finding out more and connecting with you.
1: Yeah, the Billion Dollar Networking is no longer. That's just kind of an overall umbrella. The actual company is Network Builders Arizona. Okay. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you for taking the time to tell us about your service and your unique Peace Corps story before we close out the episode is there anything else that you would like to share with the listeners
1: well I really appreciate what you're doing Tyler because though I have a journal for two years and I've tried to commit it to digital you know there's a good chance I won't make it um And what you're doing is so valuable because there is so much to share. Every time we have a reunion with our group, and I say it's been 51 years. We haven't had 51, but we've had a lot. Every time we do that, um, there's new awareness. There's a new appreciation. There's a new um, reality that none of us went into this whole thing with judgment, We went in with an open mind to serve and to promote and increase love, prosperity, and peace. And what you're doing is literally propagating that, making that blossom and bloom and helping people to work together just as I am in collaboration. You're doing it in the Peace Corps community, and I really appreciate that. I really do. Thank you very much.
0: No, thank you. It's definitely been an amazing project for me because it, you know it's an opportunity for me to be continually reminded of my service through listening to other people's stories and the the commonalities of the things that we experienced you know from across the globe across decades Mm -hmm. that all tie us together so i thank you for taking the time to speak with me and share your unique story and i think people will definitely find a lot of value in it
1: great thank you very much
0: Thank you, everybody, for listening. Once again, if you want to stay better connected with me and the My Peace Corps Story podcast, head on over to MyPeaceCorpsStory.com. If you want to know my personal Peace Corps story, please check out my book, Service Disrupted, available on Amazon. Every volunteer has a story. What's yours?